Today we want to begin a series uh, talking about serving in the kingdom of Christ. We're going to talk about serving in the kingdom of Christ. So I invite you to turn your Bibles on or open them up to the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, this will be a two-part series this week and next week. So you want to make sure you get here next week, too, to finish to hear the finish of this uh, of this particular series, but serving in the in the kingdom of Christ, Matthew chapter twenty is where we're going to to be delving into on uh, on today. And Matthew chapter twenty, and we'll begin uh, reading at verse twenty uh, on today. Matthew chapter twenty, and uh, read verse twenty, and then down through verse twenty four from the English Standard Version of Scripture. The word says, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom, the fa- for whom it has been prepared by my father. And verse 24 says, And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. As I said today, we want to talk today about serving in the kingdom of Christ. And this is the first part of this series, serving in the kingdom of Christ. Today and next week, we will explore the state of, or the condition of serving in the kingdom of our Lord. What does serving look like today in the kingdom of Christ? We will delve into the area of what it means to serve the cause of Christ. We will ask the tough questions concerning our understanding of service and whether we believe that God approves of our service. Now, this, I believe, is necessary. And it's necessary due to the times and the seasons in which we live. Now, the church has always been and even is now continuing to be under satanic attack. Now, I'm surprised when I hear believers speak of a persecuted church as if that's a new thing. Amen. Amen. We talk about, oh, the church today is under attack as if the church hasn't always been under attack. As if the church hasn't always been on Satan's hit list. As if the church hasn't always been an uh, object of, of uh, targeted for destruction by the kingdom of hell. Amen? So it's not new. It's not new. Being under attack is not new. 
Check out the book of Acts when you get some time. Read the inception of the church starting in chapter 2 with the day of Pentecost and read the persecutions that happened immediately as the church of Jesus Christ came together. As this new thing happened that brought people together under the banner and the flag of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So since Pentecost, the church has been on Satan's hit list. Now, I don't want to just talk to you as if this is just the institutional church or what we consider, you know, the building that houses the believers. We call that the church. Actually, it's believers that have been on under, under attack since day one. Since the first person confessed belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ, Satan has gone about the desire to destroy believers. Do I have a witness there? Amen. Amen. And so here we have this this concept, this idea of, of being on Satan's hit list as has been since the beginning of the church. Now, if you pay attention. Efforts. That Satan makes to destroy the church, to destroy believers, reveal themselves on a daily basis. And it's 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 amazing to me. That in a country like America, that founded itself on the values of religious freedom, you have this kind of attack on religious liberty. This country was founded on the principles of being able to freely worship. The pilgrims, we're told, came from England to escape the oppressive tyranny of the Church of England, the Anglican Church, to come over and to be able to freely worship God in the way in which they desired. But yet in America in 2014, we are still dealing with religious persecution. Amen. Amen. This is going to be tough. It's going to be tough. Now watch this. I don't know if you've been paying attention to the news lately, but... There's something going on in Houston, Texas that that really drives this point home. Pastors, preachers of the gospel, prognosticators of the word that stand flat footed and give the gospel of Jesus Christ and preach that word are are being subpoenaed. Because they oppose an ordinance being debated or one that was passed by the Houston City Council, backed by Mayor Anise Parker, which, among other things, would bring gender-neutral bathrooms to the city. You stop in a public accommodation, and rather than, rather than saying men's room and women's room, it just said room. <laughs> Amen. Go in at your own risk. But this, but this, is, this is what the thinking is of some of our elected officials. So right there in Houston, they sent out a subpoena for pastors to turn over their sermons. Now, you might not believe me. I mean, some of you might believe what you read in the newspaper, but here it is. The Washington Times printed a story about this, and I quote, the story says, after calling church sermons fair game for subpoena, Houston mayor 
Anise Parker backed down Wednesday from the city's effort to force local pastors to turn over speeches and papers related to a hotly contested transgender rights ordinance. The city had asked five pastors for all speeches, presentations, or sermons on a variety of topics, including the mayor and gender identity. Now, you wouldn't even believe right now, if you've been a Christian for a while, that that exists in our country. You wouldn't even believe it. When I first read about this and heard about this, I didn't want to believe it. I'm like, there must be some mistake. You know, and as a pastor, I was stunned by the notion that a government entity would have the audacity to openly violate its own constitution that protects the religious liberty of people and seek to confiscate sermons delivered just because the government objects to those sermons. Then I remembered, my brothers and sisters, I remembered that the kingdom of Satan has no qualms about attacking the church and persecuting her leaders. I remembered as down through history that governments and kings have always wanted to silence the voices of those who speak the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They never wanted people to hear that there is another kingdom other than the kingdom of man. And all I could say, my brothers and sisters here at Bethel Gary, if I was in Houston this morning, just get my bail money ready. Just don't leave me in there too long. <laughs> I, I, I would be going for sure. You know, but I, I, and I think about this. I think about this as it relates to how we consider what is happening in our world. And as believers, we have, we have placed ourselves in, a, in kind of a state of being oblivious to what these attacks are. And you might say, how does this have to, what does this have to do with serving in the kingdom? You've got to first know what's going on in your world. And that ought to help motivate you. And so here, here people were attacking, they're attacking the church and the pastors in Houston. But the salient point, the salient point here is that we need to be clear in our understanding of how the world system and those under its authority feel about the church. There's a time right now and a need for clarity, which I believe God brings to us through the auspices of persecution. When we see persecution like this, it is a reminder of the clarity that we need in understanding that we are members of a different kingdom. Amen. We are members of a different entity. We are not to feel at home in this world. Every now and then, my grandmother used to make spaghetti sauce in a big pot. And every now and then she'd say to me as a kid, boy, go over there and stir that pot up. 
And I, and I really believe that every now and then the Holy Spirit has to come down and stir up the pot of the church. We've gotten too comfortable. We've gotten too, too self-absorbed. And so God wants his church through persecution to know that you're not to feel at home in this world. So watch this now. Watch this now. The, this clarity, this persecution should provide for us additional motivation to serve well in the kingdom of our Lord. And I ask you, my brothers and sisters, in light of these events that I mentioned, just one aspect, how can we justify our own inactivity or dereliction of duty when it comes to our serving? What excuse will we give when we have so great a salvation? What excuse will we give when we have so great a message, so great a gospel that needs to be preached in all the world? How will we stand before God and say we let this mess happen on our watch? Oh, I knew it wasn't going to be no amens right there. I just, But I want you to think about that. How do, we, how do we give an account for our inactivity, for the fact that, that we found other things to do rather than serving in the kingdom of our Lord? Watch this now. Watch this now. There are two tough questions I want to ask you this morning. The tough questions. In general, is the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, and I mean believers, right now, a place where believers are enthusiastically searching for opportunities to serve Christ by serving others. Are we that place right now, right this minute? If we were to be honest with ourselves, are we as believers chomping at the bit to serve? Are we so desirous of service that I have, to, I have to push you back and say, slow down? Are you beating down the pastor's door saying, how can I serve in the kingdom? Or, here's the other tough question. Are believers decidedly more motivated by being in a place that quote unquote meets our own spiritual and emotional needs as we see them. And once that is done, we're satisfied. Think about how people choose a church. We shop for a church like we shop for groceries. Huh? We go to a grocery store, we go down the aisle, we find something that appeals to us. We may have come there for three things, we, live with, we leave with 30 things. Amen. We shop for a church like we shop for clothes. We go in and see what's on the rack, see if it looks good on us, try it on, and then we buy it. And when you think about how we look at, how we look at the church and how we have such a consumeristic attitude towards serving in God's kingdom. Oh, we can't just serve. We have to find some place that meets our needs. And it has to meet our needs in the way we think. Our needs should be met. You know, you can preach, but don't preach too long. (laughs) You can sing, 
but don't sing too many songs. You can have me stand up, but don't have me stand up too long. When I get to yours, just say something. Huh? You can have events, but don't have too many events because I have a busy schedule and a busy life. So you think about how we look at this idea of being members of this kingdom. And I ask you, are we more concerned with what goes on in our own lives? And is the kingdom is the kingdom just a part of our lives or does the kingdom inform everything you do in life? Because when you read the Bible, I see people in the book of Acts who've made commitments for the kingdom to inform everything they do in life, everything they think, everywhere they go. It was all about being members of this new kingdom. But I'm afraid to say today that there are some real challenges when it comes to that kind of thinking amongst believers. We are, we are looking at, at, at life and we're saying going to church is just something I do. I go on Sunday so I can feel better about the hell I caught all week long. Amen. And so I, I, I need to unburden myself. But you know what that makes this worship experience about? It makes it about you. And not about who Jesus is. I, I knew it was going to be quiet in here today. I just had that, had that thought. <laughs> now, so which of these two opposing conditions more accurately describes us? Every believer should be motivated to serve Christ based solely upon the fact that we are all recipients of a great grace that came to us by way of the sacrificial death and the glorious resurrection of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. How is that not enough for us? Why do you have to have your arm twisted? Why does the preacher have to make you feel guilty in order to serve, in order to give? Why do I have to get up here and cry? You know, we have some preachers, we cry on demand. (laughs) Church not bringing enough money, I'm going to cry. Oh, Lord Jesus. Why, Why do you need those things to motivate us? I mean, Dexter preached last week very well about the idea of being motivated by grace. If you really understand, I wish I had a witness in here today. If you really understand grace, nobody ought to be able to hold you back when you understand what it took for you to be saved. The sacrifice that was made by Jesus. You wouldn't be talking about, well, I'm not going to go today. I've been to church five or six Sundays in a row. I deserve me a day off. How do you take a day off from the Lord? Amen. Imagine if God had that attitude. I've been giving you air every day. 
So I decide I'm going to take a day off. Huh? You'd be like, Lord, please don't take a day off. I'll, I'll put my A in my mama name if I have to. I just... <laughs> but, but imagine, how is grace not enough for us to serve? Now, I'm not telling you that other things in your life are not important, but how do they become more important as a believer than the kingdom? Perhaps the reason for our failure to serve in the kingdom of Christ rather than the selfish pursuits of personal needs lies in the fact that we might simply misunderstand this concept of kingdom regarding our relationship with Christ. What does it mean to live within the kingdom of Christ in this world? What does that mean? What does it look like? Now, just before we, we, we the text we read in Matthew 20 and, and starting at verse 20, just before that text, at the beginning of that chapter, Jesus tells a parable about the kingdom. He speaks a parable concerning serving in the kingdom. And our Lord often chose parables or illustrations about earthly realities that teach spiritual principles as a means to illustrate important elements about his kingdom. In Matthew 20 and 1 and following, Jesus speaks of a man who hired servants or workers at four different times during the day. Some of the first thing that happened early in the morning, then around 9 a.m., and then around noon, and then around 11, uh, 5 or 6 o'clock in the evening, right before quitting time. Every one of those times, those servants were hired, and they were hired for the price of one denarius. Let's just call it a dollar. And the, and the morning workers were to get a dollar for all the work they did. And the workers that were hired right before quitting time were to also get a dollar for what they did. That was the agreement. Now, watch how, watch how human nature gets involved in this thing. And so here, here this man, it comes time for, for the, the workers to be paid. And they're standing there before the paymaster. And the, 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 the boss said, make sure you pay the ones that were hired last Pay them first. And so and so they get paid their dollar. They had worked an a, a, a hour or so, and they got their dollar, and they're happy and walk out. Wow, you know, a whole dollar for an hour's worth of work. You know, if I put that in, in, in today's money, maybe it would be $20 an, an hour or something like that. So they, let's say they got their $20. Then the ones that were hired in mid-afternoon, they got their $20. And they said, well, you know, it's not bad. You know, three or four hours of work, I got 20 bucks. And then those who were hired in the, in the morning, around 9 or 10 o'clock in the morning, got their 20 bucks. And their face began to look a little like, wait a minute. Now, the ones who were hired first, in their mind, they know that if all these folks got 20, I know we're getting more. We have worked all day long from sunup to sundown. And when it came time for them to get paid, they only received the agreed upon amount of the $20. 
and their face was tore up. Their attitude got bad very quickly. How in the world is it fair for me to work all day long and get paid the same as some dude that got here about an hour ago? Human nature. We have our own concept of fairness, and we are willing in that concept to overlook the fact that there was an agreement made. You got what was agreed upon for you to work. Nobody cheated you. So when you think about this, and you think about this parable, it teaches us much about what attitude we have when it comes to serving. Do we believe, because we have served longer, that we deserve more from the Lord? In other words, because you've been around here longer, should we give you more recognition? Should we call your name more often? Should we all clap when you walk in? Tell us what you want. You know, you got folks in the church that if they open a window, they expect their name to be called. They turn on the heat. They expect their name to be called. Well, we'd like to thank Brother So-and-So for turning on the heat today because we have no idea how to work that thermostat if it wasn't for him. And that's the attitude that often permeates our idea of service. Like somehow we deserve more because we've been here longer. And Jesus says, you need to understand this thing. The first will be last and the last will be first. Amen. Come on, give God praise. That's right. But see, that changes your paradigm if you wanted the first. You have to learn to esteem and to love those who come in later. Amen. Amen. And appreciate the fact that God is still adding people to the kingdom. Oh, come on, give God some praise there. So, so, So it also illustrates to us an important truth about the kingdom of Christ. The word kingdom has as its root the idea of king's domain. Or where the king rules and where the king resides. If we are in the kingdom of Christ, then we are in the domain of Christ the king. It is where he ought to rule and where he ought to reside. And he ought to be, his word ought to be the last word. And so in this parable, the man who hired the workers retains the right to do as he pleases regarding his own generosity. He paid each to agreed upon rage. In the kingdom of Christ, we must remember that our Lord is the one who determines what is equitable and just. And as believers and recipients of grace, we are living as citizens of his kingdom. Now, that's very important when you think about how you're serving. Are you serving as if this kingdom belongs to you? Amen. As you get to decide to do what you please with your abilities and the grace and the gifts that God has given you. You have been gifted these gifts. You have been gifted these things. But yet God ought to be the one who decides and determines how you operate. 
So as citizens of the kingdom of Christ, there are three elements in this text that I want to share with you and then we'll be done. First of all, righteous serving does not seek title or office. I'm going to let that marinate for just a minute. Righteous serving does not seek title or office. Watch this now. The mother of the sons of Zebedee came up with her sons, the scripture says, and kneeling before and she asked him for some, and Jesus just, just cuts to the chase. You know, I, and I imagine if we put in, if it had been me, I'd just say, woman, what you want? You have something on your mind that you need to get off of. it. So I'm going to ask you, what is it that you want? And so, and so she says to him, and it's interesting how she almost sets up a hypothetical. She said, now, Lord, say for a minute, just since we talking, say, say, say for a minute that these two boys of mine, you know, James and John here, been hanging around with you and following you. They're pretty good boys, aren't they? They've done pretty much what you've asked them to do. Say for a minute that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left when you get into your kingdom. We're just hypothetically talking. We're just trying to see how this, I'm just wondering how, what's it going to be like for my boys. Now remember, these are grown men and they mama. Some of y'all see where I'm going here. <laughs> Brothers, I'm going to tell you something right now. It's going to be hard to get a woman to follow you and your mama doing the talking for you. Did I say that out loud? Or let me just, I threw that in for free. So, so here James, John, and their mother desired positions of great authority in the kingdom of Christ. What was their motivation for those, for that desire? They want to sit on the right and on the left, these positions of authority, and, and it makes them look good to everybody. They have a title, uh, uh, you know, James the right, John the left, whatever the case may be. They were motivated by desire for the office and the authority that comes with it. Now watch this. All too often, believers fall into the trap of tying your service to a title or an office in the church. Amen. Amen. Instead of just volunteering to serve, you wait until somebody give you a title. We want to make you in charge, the head, president, chief, seat straighten outer. In the sanctuary on Sunday. And we're going to give you a title. So every time your name is in the bulletin, that is a long title. I don't know if I told you this before, but if I did, forgive me. But I was, I was preaching a, a funeral once, at, and, and one of the guys that came in was, was another minister there, and he, had a, he handed me his business card. And, I, and I, you know, let me just tell you, first of all, he was dressed in a full Catholic cassock. He wasn't Catholic. And he had a Monsignor's hat on. And he had a cross so big that I thought, how does he stand up straight with that cross on? And he came in, he handed me his business card. And on the business card was, you know, I won't tell you his name, but his title was Chief Apostle Head Prelate 
um, let me see, what else? Oh, bishop, uh, uh, oh, chief overseer, and then his name. And I'm like, that's a lot of titles. How do you get to be the chief apostle? I mean, I'm, I'm looking for his name in scripture. You're the, <laughs> you're the chief apostle? My goodness, how does that, and who made you the chief apostle? I need to talk to the Lord. I've been been around for a while. I ought to have at least one of those titles, you know. But but I'm saying that, that if your business card has to say all of that, I'm concerned about what your life is saying. Amen. People ought not have to, you ought not greet people with your title. Oh, yes, I'm uh, head of the, the, this group in, uh, at our church, and uh, you know, as if we can't function without you. Right. Let me help you understand something. The Lord's church has been around a long time. And if you don't tarry till he come back, he'll be here when you're gone. Amen. And so, and so we get tied up in this seeking of titles. God is not pleased with selfish desires for leadership. God's not happy with that when our selfish desires overtake our, uh, the need to just serve in humility or his call to serve in humility. We get too worried about who's going to be the president of the group. That's why I'm glad we don't have presidents around here. Yeah, that's a, that's a political office. A lot of our churches, I'm the president of the choir. What's your job? Because it seems like to me, choir members' only job is to sing. I handle all the business. What business you have other than singing? <laughs> I'm in trouble now for real, I know. <laughs> you know, we get tied up in having a title, an office. And I wonder... How many people would just serve if they didn't have a title? The second thing I want to drop in your spirit from this from this text is righteous serving requires a life commitment. Not just intellectual agreement, but a life commitment. Don't say you're going to serve and you're not ready to commit your life. Watch this now. Look at verse 22 and Jesus's answer here. He says, you do not know what you are asking. And most people, when they think about how quick they are to volunteer and get involved, they really don't know what it is they're getting into. Because we usually volunteer when other people can see us. We put out this call. Hey, we need somebody that's going to do this. Oh, yes, pastor, choose me. Yes, I'll do it. Yes, me. I'm the one. I'm your person. And everybody gets to see you and you're like, they're like, wow, praise God. You know, look at that. You know, just stand up and answer the call. Do you really know what you're asking? Do you really know what you're getting into? Do you really know what's, what it is to serve in the kingdom of Christ? Are you really aware of that? Look at what Jesus says. You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, Quite boldly, I might add, we are able. 
we're going to drink from the same cup you drink from. And I can see Jesus, if you just allow your mind to go there with me, just chomping at the bit. You have no idea what you are asking. You have no idea what it means to drink from the same cup that I drink from. In asking for title and position, James and John pronounced themselves ready to drink from the same cup as our Lord. Now, let me help you understand this. Symbolically, in the Old Testament, to drink from the cup means to suffer the same judgment and sacrifice as another, in this case, Jesus. If you're talking about drinking from the same cup that Jesus drank from, you better be ready to go to the same cross that Jesus went to. Oh, yeah. Huh? You asked me to go to the cross. See, Jesus was Jesus understood this and he had said to them that if any man would come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me daily. We kind of forget that part about taking up our cross. If there's a cross for my Lord, there's a cross for me. If Jesus had to carry his cross, then so yes, must I in this world carry my cross. I wish I had some Christians that want to carry the cross today. We, he said, you, you have no idea. This sacrifice that you, that you, this cup that you're talking about drinking from this, 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 you don't even know what that's about. And see, I can see right now in our minds turn it over. I'm making a commitment. I'm a Christian. Let me, let me help you understand. If you made that commitment to be a Christian, you are called to drink from that cup. How do we know that? What does Jesus say? In verse 23, he says them, you will drink my cup. Yes. Yes, you will. You will drink my cup. They obviously didn't understand the life commitment necessary to even serve at the level of their own request. They wanted the position and the power without the sacrifice. Isn't it just like human nature? We desire the glory, but we don't want the sacrifice. We like Easter, but we don't like Good Friday. And I'm here to tell you that for every Easter in your life, there are going to be some good Fridays. Amen. For every resurrection in your life, there's some Calvary. There's some death. There's some things that must die in your life in order for you to be raised up to where God would have you to be. And so, and so here, watch this now. They didn't understand that life commitment. In the church, we often fail to help people understand. And this is, kind of, this is kind of something that leadership should wrestle with in the kingdom of God. See, because if I tell you all the good things about being a Christian, I'll keep you coming here. I'll keep you giving. If I just tell you the wonderful, the wonderful things about being a believer. But if I tell you the tough parts. If I tell you that, that, that this is a life commitment. That will bring major changes in your life. That following Jesus will often be a lonely venture. 
it will place you at odds with people that you love. Oh, I wish I had somebody. Following Jesus will cause difficulty in your own home. Following Jesus will have your children looking at you like you lost your mind. How come I can't go? Because that's not what the Lord would have for us to do. And they'll walk away. I can't stand my daddy and mama. I, come on, you know you've done it. Mama make me sick. I just... Following Jesus does not always create this peaceful utopia, but it actually creates a, a difficulty in life. But it's a difficulty that God says that we are to have and are to create because he is willing to stand and to walk with us through the most difficult times of our lives. <clears throat> Watch this now. Watch this. To serve in the kingdom of Christ requires that we be willing to drink from the cup of sacrifice, giving our very lives, if necessary, to advance the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In a world that is opposed to the truth of the gospel, this will never be a comfortable enterprise. It'll never be comfortable. Never. Not one time. If you are living as a believer in this comfortable existence, this utopia, you looking around telling people, I don't have no problem. All is well. I'm going to say, who are you representing? Because when you represent Christ, you stir the pot. When you represent Christ, by the very nature, people who are unbelievers are not going to like you. They will call you goody two-shoes, church boy, church girl. They'll, they'll tell you, stop judging me. Uh, how many times you heard that? Don't judge me. Honey, I didn't judge you. God did. You can't, you can't judge me. Okay, I'm not a judge, but I'm a fruit inspector. You'll know a tree by the fruity bear, baby. Huh? <laughs> I, that that therein lies this idea of 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 where we are as believers. We're not we're not creating any waves. That's why the mayor of Houston could feel like she could do what she did. She has no fear of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Because he know that we'll go and, and we'll go into the voting booth and we'll go in there blindly and we'll just do whatever and we don't even think about what's going on. Now, God calls us to love all people. So don't get me wrong when I say this. But I'm going to tell you something, my brothers and sisters. If the church does not take a stand against sin, then we are doomed to continue to watch our society go down the drain. Let me, let me help you understand something. You don't have to be perfect to stand against sin. As a matter of fact, here's the way you do it. You, 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 you open your mouth and just admit that you're not perfect from the beginning. And you let people know this isn't about my life. It isn't about me being perfect. It's about what thus saith the Lord. And I'm held to the same standard. 
Finally, serving righteously unites and does not divide fellow servants. Look at verse 24 here. Verse 24, we read, and when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. When they heard it, the very request of these brothers when received by their fellow servants, created a feeling of indignation among them. It wasn't that they were filled with humility and righteously rejected the request of the brothers. On the contrary, they were indignant because they felt that they would lose out on positions which they too coveted. They were all jockeying for the same position in the kingdom. A lot of the reason why we have discord in the family of God is because we all bumping into one another trying to get to the front. Now, how can we serve a God that's everywhere at the same time, able to bless everybody at the same time, and you worried about whether you're in the front or the back? I'll stand back here because I know the same God has the same blessing for the back of the line as he has for the front of the line. Watch this now. Watch. In, in, in contrast, righteous and self-sacrificing service actually unites people. When people see your willingness to give the best of your service in the heat of the day without complaint and without concern for your own well-being, they actually see the power of God manifested in you. And this brings people together. People see that you are serious about the Lord. That brings people together. So I say to you, serve well in humility. Do not tangle yourselves in the desires for status or position. Give God all of your heart. Focus upon pleasing him and not man. Remember that you are here because of his grace, his sacrifice, his death, his resurrection, his kingdom under his authority, in his power, with his presence, sharing his gospel, telling the world his story, lifting him up so that he will draw all men unto him. That's why you serve. That's why you serve. 